Our plan is, this is our second week on uh, Perseverance of the Saints. Next week, we plan to have one more week to sort of close things out. And then uh, we will have one last week on the whole series. And uh, if, if any of you have any questions, and I really mean this, we, we would love to take any questions you have, and we, we don't guarantee we will have the perfect answer to your question, but if you have questions on anything we've talked about in this whole series, uh, or things that you, you wish could have been mentioned a little bit more clearly or more frequently, you can email uh, any of us or text us or just contact us, talk to us after the service, and we would love to talk about any questions you might have. But we'll, we'll try to have a summary week uh, in a couple of Sundays to wrap up this series, and then we'll move into our two different uh, Sunday School series uh, after that, starting on the 9th, I believe it is. So, uh, Jerry, can you open us in prayer? And then today we're going to look at a couple of uh, pretty disputed text in the book of Hebrews related to can you lose your salvation or not, and, uh, and, and so we got plenty to look at today. Yeah, really good warning passages. Let's do go to our Lord. Father, what a joy to come before your throne of grace. Lord, we pray that today as we look at uh, passages that um, are so good for us, Lord, that will um, reassure those who may have doubts but are truly believers and uh, will warn those who might have a false assurance of their salvation um, that they need to race to you um, to, to know you and to love you and to serve you. And so, Father, we pray uh, that today we may be not just hearers of the word, but doers as well, and uh, that we would be faithful with these uh, challenging texts. We thank you so much for the book of Hebrews and uh, what we can learn today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And before we start in Hebrews 6, which is where we're going to be in just a moment, I'm going to put Greg on the spot here. And I have not warned him of this, oh, which no. I, it's always fun. So um, with, uh, with the New Testament, Greg, we've got plenty of what we call warning passages. Jerry just mm -hmm. alluded, alluded to those. They're, they're in multiple books of the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul has them. Hebrews has them. Um, when you get to these warning texts, these are normally written to churches. Right. And they're saying things like, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God in Galatians 5, or here in Hebrews, there's some pretty severe warnings. How are we to think about the fact that we're talking to churches? These are no doubt baptized members professing faith in Christ. They're parts of local churches. Why in the world would we have warning passages that, that seem to indicate, and I think do indicate, that certain activities will lead to perishing eternally if we're talking to churches? What, what would be the purpose of that in the New Testament? I think... Uh, at least one of the purposes um, is to guard us from thinking that because we're saved by grace, not according to works, that God keeps us, we can't lose our salvation. It guards us from wrongly but logically concluding that therefore it doesn't matter how we live. We can do whatever we want. If we're not saved by anything we do, we can't do anything to forfeit it, then it doesn't matter what we do. Um, Hold your place. I want you guys to see this. This is something that has stuck out to me. And, you know, you asked the question. And so I think Paul, yeah. Paul deals with this. I know Martin Lloyd-Jones said, and I'm not going to get this, this quote just right, but he said something. I think he's on point with this, that if, you, if you're preaching the gospel rightly, um, well, let me say that next. He says, if you don't get accused at some point um, of, like, preaching a gospel that um, encourages people not to care about how they live, then you're probably not preaching the gospel right. Because the gospel of salvation by grace alone is such a scandal to the human mind. Um, look at what Paul says in Romans 3, 
Um, let's just start. We'll read verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 8. I'm not going to take long on this because I know we don't want to spend all our time here. But you ask about warning passages. Um, there's a mindset we could wrongly adopt, and Paul speaks against that. He says, what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And now look at verse 5. He says, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? And so what some people were accusing Paul of was saying, look, you're teaching this, this gospel of grace. You don't work for it. You can't earn it. You don't ultimately keep it by your works. And you say God's so sovereign over things that, man, he brings so much good out of evil. Therefore, we should just do all the evil we can do so that we get even more good from God. And Paul's like, if that's what you take away from our gospel, you are justly condemned because you don't get the gospel. In no way, shape, fashion, or form does a gospel of free grace ever encourage, condone, endorse sin in the life of those who receive this gospel. It never does. And so warning passages are intentionally in Scripture, I think, by God's design to keep us from even unintentionally at first slipping into the mindset that Paul was being accused of. That, hey, it doesn't matter how we live. And hey, you know what? If, if God's sovereign and Romans 8, 28 is true, let's just sin all we can because God's going to get even more glory by doing good to us and bringing good out of that sin. So warning passages keep us from slipping into a really dangerous mindset. And Jerry, just with, with the concept in general, like in Hebrews 6 and 10, these, these warnings that are very intense... There, you mentioned in your prayer, there's a balance here between different kinds of audiences that are going to hear us. What is this balance and how can we go wrong or right on, on this whole thing? Yeah. Wow. I, the, the passage that reminded me of, and uh, won't ask you to turn it, I'll just read it real fast, the, is the Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, in your name, um, and uh, many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare from you, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the, the saddest thing that someone could ever hear was someone who felt like they, because they maybe went to church or they were, what quote unquote, a good person, felt like they were going to heaven and they were truly believers, but they weren't then I think this passage is great to wake them up, to, to, to reevaluate, to do some spiritual inventory, and to say, was I lulled into sleep into thinking that? And I think that um, maybe the South, more than some other parts of the United States, could be prone to that. We've certainly seen that um, oftentimes at school. So many of our students that come to love and know Christ we're sure that they came to love and know Christ a long time ago, then they realized they weren't, and then they, once they do, they look back and say, I had deceived, I had been a false convert, 
And so, so good um, for that group. But at the same time, there's so many believers that struggle, true believers, that struggle with assurance. And um, so that's not a passage like this can be scary to them, and, uh, but it shouldn't be. And what I love about um, Hebrews 6 is right after 4 to 8, which is a huge warning, that verse 9 mm-hmm. just goes right to assurance. We feel sure of better things yes. for you, things that and accompany so, salvation. Don't you love that? Back to back, there's a warning and then an assurance. Yeah. Uh, so it fits both groups there. And y'all know Alistair, or many of you know Alistair Begg, who we, we sometimes will listen to around here, and uh, he's great preacher. And Alistair Begg said, preaching on these texts in Hebrews, he said, here's what I often find happens. And I, I, can, I can give testimony. I think others can give testimony. This, this is not uncommon. He said, I'll preach on a warning passage in the Bible. And he said, here's what often happens. Genuine believers in my church who have every, I have every reason to believe, know the Lord truly, but have very tender consciences and are prone towards doubt, call me all week long, worried about their salvation. And he's like, I don't think that th- these individuals really need to be calling me. He said, on the, on the same time, the people I'm really concerned about, who I really think should be calling me, it's radio silence. And I think that's so often the case. People with a very tender, tender conscience who truly know the Lord will hear these passages and be shaken up and be sometimes unsettled about their own walk with the Lord. Am I truly saved? And then some of the ones who really need to be shaken up and maybe don't really know the Lord are, are callous as the day is long sometimes. So the, the, we have to be very careful how we present these texts. We don't want to unsettle the saved. We also don't want to settle the unsaved. And uh, the Holy Spirit ultimately has to be the one who goes to work in these things. So turn with us here, Hebrews chapter 6. And... Uh, We'll read, uh, we'll read through the text here, starting in the first verse, and there's a lot to unravel. Uh, Hebrews 6, verse 1. Uh, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of, uh, and of instruction about washings and uh, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, here's the really controversial section here. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt." For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Uh, And I'll read a couple more verses. Verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So do you see here at the, at the very center of the text that makes it so tricky is the part on the screen here as well. It says it is impossible for certain people uh, who have fallen away to be restored back to repentance again. And, I mean, the word impossible may be the most stunning word in this whole section. 
It's impossible for this particular group of people who have once fallen away to be restored back to faith in Christ. So just from the get-go, I'll say this first of all. We don't think this is teaching that you can lose your salvation. But do you see how someone could read it that way? It sounds like it's describing a Christian. This person is enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. This sounds like a Christian. Uh, They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then they have renounced it. They have fallen away from grace. They've renounced Jesus. They've gone back perhaps to Judaism or some other sacrificial system as their way of atonement before God. They've renounced the atonement of Jesus. And the author here says, not that it's unlikely that they'll come back, it's impossible. So here's the first point I want to make out of the gate. If this were teaching that you could lose your salvation, what is it teaching that once you've lost your salvation? You can't get it back. So those who want to use this text to argue that you can lose your salvation would have to also say, if you've lost it once, what's true? It's impossible to be restored again to repentance. So it's impossible to get it back. So that's quite startling. So it's not as though you could get, have a salvation, lose it, and then get it back again. It, it sounds like if it were teaching that, once you lo- lose it, it's lost forever. You can't get it back. Another thing I'll say that Alistair Begg pointed out. Alistair Begg was great. He said, we want to be humble before these texts. We don't want to act as though they're not here. We want to study them carefully. We want the wording to be precise. Amen to that. He said, but here's the deal. Sometimes the real quick superficial reading of a passage may sound one way, but when you go back and look at it more carefully in context, you come to find out what? It means something actually slightly different, or in this case, a lot different than how it was initially taken. And, and Beg made this point. He said, you know, last week, if you were here, we looked at a whole bunch of texts. Those whom God justified, he glorified. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, those who uh, the shepherd has, has died for the sheep, the sheep hear my voice. They will follow me, and I will lose none of them. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who's greater than I, has them in his hand, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. On and on and on, you can look at these texts, and over and over, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Trouble, hardship, persecution, fame, and naked sword, nothing, not the present nor the future, can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus. On and on. So when you look at, (laughs) there are many, many texts, I think, that are unmistakably clear that are saying what? If you truly know the Lord... You will be saved, and the Lord will keep you His all the way till the end, and you will never ultimately fall away from Him. And there are, there's such an abundance of clear texts on this issue that I don't feel any hesitation at all to say that the Bible teaches you cannot lose your salvation if you truly know the Lord. But that being the case, we have to slow down and look very carefully at a text like this. Uh, Jerry, any thoughts about uh, these verses here? Because I know they've been disputed a lot of times. Well, no, I do think that Scripture interprets Scripture. We need to remember that. And so... If we just had four through six um, of Hebrews 6, but we don't. We have so much more, and the the wealth of Scripture um, is so clear on um, eternal security that um, this is not as stunning as uh, it would be if that's all we had. Right. Greg? Well, I think kind of going off that, like, that's one of the dangers we face with a passage like this is we typically isolate it as an island unto itself, and we forget other scripture. Um, First, we need to read all of Hebrews. Um, And if you read all of Hebrews, you come away uh, with so many places that it is clear that Christ saves us completely to the uttermost. Um, And and there is nothing that can break that. There's nothing that can undo that. There's nothing that can uh, sever uh, the work that he's done. It's a perfect work. And those who draw near to God through him like we have full confidence and assurance. 
And so even in the book of Hebrews, it is absolutely clear that you can't lose your salvation. And so we go back to a principle we've talked about. We, you know, you know, one, Scripture interprets Scripture, and because of that, Scripture's not going to contradict Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the danger we face. You know, uh, we mentioned in terms of like, you know, Calvinism versus Arminianism. Well, you've got your verses, and well, my verses cancel your verses out. And it's like, no, that's, that's not how Scripture works. Scripture doesn't do that. It one part doesn't cancel out another part where it clearly teaches us, ah, nope, sorry, you can't do that because we got this verse over here that says that verse. Well, that verse clearly teaches, and it's like, no, we, we've got to do more work. Like we tried to show. And so the same thing with, with a passage like this. We know from Hebrews, from the rest of the New Testament, from the whole Bible, that those who are truly gods can't lose that salvation. So we just have to say, okay, then we get a passage like Hebrews 6, a passage like Hebrews 10. What is it actually saying? Right. In its context, if you can't lose your salvation, then it, the author of Hebrews isn't going to contradict himself on that. Then what is he saying? And that's why we just, you, like we said with so many things, you just got to get down into the text, work your way slowly through it, think through what's being said, and it's amazing the insight that you and get. This, your principle, Scripture interprets Scripture, and, and what we've talked about before as well is the more clear texts are used to interpret the less clear texts. I think that is an extremely important principle in biblical interpretation. What, what, what cults and false teachers will do is they'll take a verse that's very obscure, and like, I just not, not to get distracted, Mormonism will teach a, a very elaborate view of baptism for the dead, okay? And they have a very strange, unbiblical view of what that means, and they have a whole, jo- Joseph Smith developed this whole theology of baptism for the dead. There is one obscure verse in the New Testament where Paul mentions that some in the Corinthian church were being baptized for the dead. Paul doesn't endorse the practice. He doesn't condemn the practice. He doesn't explain the practice. But we are not to make a whole theology out of one obscure verse in 1 Corinthians 15. But Mormonism will take their whole theology and read it into a very unclear text. Do you see how dangerous that is? Okay, now going back here. I think we have abundant texts that are very clear. We cannot lose our salvation. So let's look at alternative options here. And uh, again, just putting the list of these things on the screen here. You've got these people are enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and tasted the powers of the age to come. Now, um, think about this. Enlightened doesn't have to mean you are truly saved. Enlightened means you've come to know the truth of the gospel intellectually. The, the truth has enlightened you. Your mind has come to know that Jesus died for your sins. He's the Savior sent from God. If I trust in him, I'll be saved. By the way, does the devil know that all that is true? Yes. So being enlightened, having the truth in your brain, does not guarantee the truth is in our heart and that we are born again, right? So one commentator, um, Dennis Johnson, I found really helpful on this text. And uh, I'll, I'll just uh, stand up here. He, now, you can debate this. I think this is probably correct. You could debate it, but he, he breaks it down with this kind of a structure. So you have enlightened first, which is knowing the truth, which you don't have to be saved to know the truth. I knew the truth before I was saved, for sure. Uh, and then he puts these things like this. You ever seen one of these, like an A, B, and then you have the, the parallels here? So having tasted the heavenly gift, he thinks paralyzed the other having tasted phrase, having tasted the goodness of the word of God. He argues very likely since having tasted is used twice, What gift from heaven is it that they've tasted? It's probably the the word of God that came down from heaven, God's truth, his his, his word, his gospel, his his, his truth has been tasted. Now look at this. Having shared in the Holy Spirit probably parallels the, the reference to miracles. It says here, they've shared in the powers of the age to come. That word powers is the same word used earlier in Hebrews for miracles, right? Same exact Greek word. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various powers, the Greek word is the same word for miracles, uh, and by gifts given by the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. 
So is the Holy Spirit linked with miraculous powers in chapter 2? Yes, well, you go back to chapter 6, and you have the Holy Spirit here paralleling powers. In context, what are the powers? Miracles are almost certainly what's being referred to here. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you think of any character in the Bible who was involved in the miraculous and was not truly saved? Judas Iscariot. Okay, Judas Iscariot would, would sort of be the poster child for this kind of an individual. And you can just look on the screen if you don't want to turn here. Uh, we're going to be close to this text in a sermon soon. But Matthew 10, Jesus says this. He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them, all 12, right? He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. And then look, it names the apostles. And what's the last one mentioned here? Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And then we're even told, verse 5, these 12, that includes Judas, who was not a Christian, instructed, he, Jesus instructed them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, etc. Look at verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Did Judas do miraculous powers by the power of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Was he ever born again? No. So does that make a little more sense about what Hebrews 6 may be referring to? Can someone be part of a church, be a baptized member of a church, know the true gospel in their brain and look like they're converted? Their outward life has changed. They've even perhaps in Judas's case been part of miraculous deeds. They've tasted the powers of God's spirit. They've partaken in the power of the spirit. They've seen miraculous deeds. Does that guarantee that that person is born again? No, because, and Jerry, you just read it from Matthew 7. The Matthew 7 group, right. One more time here with Matthew 7. Look at verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not, and look at the list here, prophesy in your name, cast out demons in the name of Jesus, and do many mighty works, miracles in your name, and then I will declare to them, well, you used to know me, and I used to know you, but you lost your salvation. Is that what Jesus says? What does he say? I never knew you. So Jesus doesn't say, back when you were doing miracles in my name, you were a Christian. You had the Spirit was working through you, but now you're no longer, I, I no longer know you. No, they never knew Jesus, even though in some way they were ministering, in some way, like in a Judas Iscariot sort of sense. So I think the, per, the point here again, one other important point here is the last phrase. I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Was Judas's inward nature ever transformed? No, he loved money the whole time. He stole money. Remember? Uh, I've got it here somewhere. I may not be able to find it right now. But remember in, in John uh, chapter 12, when Mary pours out the expensive nard on, on the feet of Jesus, Judas says, we could have sold that and given it to the poor. And then says, he didn't care about the poor. What, what did he want? He wanted to slip money out of the money bag, which he was in control of. So Judas was a thief the whole time. He was in love with sin more than Jesus the whole time, stealing from Jesus personally the whole time. And finally, he betrayed Jesus for money. So Judas's nature was always loving lawlessness. He was always in love with the world, but it only really came out and showed publicly at the very end. But he never lost his salvation. He never, he never truly knew uh, the Lord Jesus. Thoughts on, the, on that part of the text? We don't want to be overly introspective, uh, morbidly introspective, as they say, but I mean, we do need every now and then to do some serious self-examination, mm -hmm. especially, um, you know, if we find a, a, not like a temporary or a, for a season, but just an ongoing, um, you know, lack of love for God, lack of desire for the Bible, lack of desire for church, 
um, you know, lack of a desire for, for prayer, for worship, for sharing the gospel. I mean, if we just see this, this long, uninterrupted pattern um, of that, um, and we're not disturbed by that, honestly, like that it doesn't really bother us, then, you know, that's when we seriously need to ask the question, do I know the Lord? And probably repentance, you know, yeah. whether we're really repentant, do we, do we hate our sin? Yeah. Or are we, you know, and, and none of us do as much as we ought. But, uh, but I think that's a good list that you just gave us. And, and there's where First John and Romans 8 and those passages that are really good to help us to discern. First John's so good to say, you know, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and you'll love others, do we? No, not perfectly. You've said it a lot of times, Mark. It's not perfection, Christianity. It's a change of direction. Have we changed the direction that we were once going when we, when we didn't know the Lord? And going with that, this is not a perfect illustration. Do we all struggle in our walk with the Lord oh. at times? I mean, do we, 100% of us, right? We struggle. There, there are ups and downs, correct? So th- th- here's an analogy, not perfect. You, 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 know, you go to the beach maybe in the summer, maybe you were there uh, not long ago. And, you know, the tide comes in and go, comes out every day, right? It's consistent, it ebbs and flows, it comes in and out. Very often in our fight to love the Lord, we feel like that ocean tide. Sometimes we're, we're high tide, our love for the Lord is very obviously strong. There are times where our love feels like it's, 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 it's waning, it's going down. But is there going to be a consistency in the battle? The, the, th- that's one thing, okay? It, comes, it may go up and down some, but there's a fight, it's a consistent thing. We're always wanting to love the Lord more. It would be another thing if the tide just went out and was gone, just stayed out, just went out and was, it never came back. Apostasy is when what looked like love for the Lord just dries up and evaporates. Mm-hmm. The battle stops. There's no more battle to read the Bible. There's no more fight to go to church. Just I'm done wasting my Sundays on that. That takes too much time. I'd rather just sit home and watch TV all day. I, I just don't, I don't want to be around Christians. They're going to be exhorting me to do all this Christian stuff. I'm, I'm tired of that. I, I frankly think it's a waste of time. I think the Bible is no longer good. I think it's probably actually bad for me. I want to live my life my way. I want to live by my own feelings and my own set of rules. And I'm sick of all this Jesus talk. That is when you should be terrified. Mm-hmm. If, if someone begins acting, they may not say it like that. But if someone begins acting like, I really just don't want to be around Christian influence. I don't want scripture. I don't want to be soaking in God's word. I don't want to be communing with God on a regular basis. I just frankly find it uninteresting, boring, distasteful. Uh, it's a killjoy experience in my life. I, I don't want that anymore. The more those characteristics begin to show, the more we should be absolutely terrified about how, how we're doing. And we should race back uh, to the cross. If, if you're in Hebrews 6 still, look at verse 7. Now, here's an analogy, and Greg, I agree with you. Greg mentioned this week that we think he's relying here on Jesus' parable of the soils, mm-hmm. which I think, he, I think that's exactly right. Verse 7, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop. Now, here you got the word useful. For those for, whom, uh, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. So you've got a good crop there. But if it bears, does this sound like Jesus? Mm-hmm. Thorns and thistles? It is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Well, just to cross-reference real quick here, I'll take us to Luke 8. And if you look on the screen here, I know there's three versions of this. They're all very similar. But in Luke's version, it says this. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on uh, their way, they are choked by what? Care, the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Remember Demas, Paul's co-worker? Demas, remember Paul's last word about Demas, 2 Timothy. 
Demas, in love with this present world, pleasures of life, in love with this pleasure, present world, has forsaken me. That's how Demas, his story ends as far as we can see. How about Judas? Riches. Choke the word, right? And their fruit does not mature. They don't produce real, lasting, abiding transformation of Christian character. It is not a real, lasting thing. And then just a few verses later, uh, Jesus, Jesus mentions the good soil. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. But look at just a few verses later. I thought this was fascinating. Verse 18, Jesus says, take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, that is not saved, I think is what it means here, to the one who has not, doesn't have salvation, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. I think that's what's going on here. So someone may think that they have something, salvation. I think Judas would have thought he was a true disciple. In his own mind, he probably thought that. But yet what he thought he had will be taken away. In other words, he never really had it. It says there, they don't have it. But what they think they have will be taken away. And I think that's the idea of the thorny soil. Uh, Greg, thoughts on, on what Jesus is getting at here? Yeah, um, I mean, you look again at verse, at verse seven. Uh, he says, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. You, you ask, how can someone be, as it says here, having shared in the Holy Spirit or having partaken of the Holy Spirit and not be a, a Christian? In the same way that land that you, you can have good soil and you can have bad soil both receive the same rain, but the rain only does something with the good soil. Mm -hmm. And so in the context of all that we've seen about like the doctrine of election um, and, and stuff like that, there are those who are truly God's people and those who might for a season look like they're God's people, but really aren't. Um, and, and what's gonna happen? Those who are truly God's people, um, they're gonna receive the, the nourishment of the spirit and, and all that's in the church those who are not God's people, they're going to look a little bit like maybe they are. They're coming to church. They're listening to sermons. They're singing songs. They're even going to groups and stuff like that. But that's how you can, you can partake of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the church is a unique place where the Holy Spirit is present. What, what's going on right now, there, there is a presence of the Spirit of God in our midst through the Word of God, uh, through every single genuine believer here. That's not the case um, when you go to Walmart. Or when you're in a, you know, a school classroom or like a civic assembly, that is not a place where the Holy Spirit is present the way he is in the midst of God's people. And so when, when an unbeliever comes into, and I'm just looking for words here, for the realm of the church, he is entering into a place in and in a gathering where the Holy Spirit is active, where the Holy Spirit is at work. And so they are, an unbeliever is, is experiencing that in an external sense in the same way that bad ground is still receiving the rain, even though that rain isn't, it's not doing anything with the rain. Um, and so that's why it's, it, we've said this, and I mean, you know this, something I try to stress to my students, it's like, you can be as involved as you possibly can be in a church. You can be an active church member, but that does not make you a Christian. You can hear the word, you can go on mission trips, you can be in Bible studies, you can even have been baptized, but that doesn't mean anything if your heart hasn't been changed, if you're not made new, if you haven't truly repented and turned to Jesus. Um, and that's why this passage is so powerful, I think, because it shows, listen, you can receive, at least externally, 
everything that Christians receive. But if, if you haven't closed with Christ, as the Puritans say, you are still lost and in your sins. And that's a terrifying place to be. But Judas would have heard every one of Jesus' yes. sermons. I mean, he was enlightened more than these people were because he was, he was with Jesus for three and a half years. Yeah, saw the miraculous, was involved in the miraculous. Mm -hmm. I love what you're uh, taking us to, Jesus, with the parable of the sower, too, because certainly the rocky soil and the thorny soil mm -hmm. sure look like believers for a short time yeah. or for, for, for some time, and then they're choked out, or the, the rocky soil, they receive it with joy, so it looks like for a little bit. Um, and probably self-deceived and look like to others they were truly believers. And I, my goal here is not to beat up on this individual. We've mentioned him several times, but it's such a prominent public example of something like this that I, I'm, I'm going to mention it again, is Joshua Harris. Mm -hmm. And it's heartbreaking because, man, I, I went to one of his conferences. He had a conference in Louisville, Kentucky. I stood right next to him. He had his backpack on. He was talking to people out in, the, out, in the, out in the conference center. I'm standing right next to the guy, and I had read some of his books here and there, and I, I had rec I'd listened to his sermons. And this is a guy who wrote like a best-selling book, you know, the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. He was like 21 years old, I think, when he wrote that book. And then he turns 40 and he goes to seminary because he'd, been, he'd pastored a big church for 10 years or so. And then he went to seminary at age 40. So for about 20 years, he was a big name in evangelicalism and was writing books that sold a lot of copies. I mean, that book on dating sold an enormous number yeah, of copies it was. when it came out. It affected a whole generation. And so he, 20 years later, He's been pastoring for more than 10 years. He goes to seminary in his 40s in Canada, and he just slowly begins to act more and more strange online. I follow him on social media. He's acting more and more weird, making these videos. I'm like, I don't get, what is he, like, what is he, why would you say that? Why are you doing that? And then before long, as you probably, you know, he, know, he, he divorces his wife. He comes out affirming LGBT issues. He says, I'm no longer a Christian by any definition of the word Christian. I'm like, I've got his book still on my shelf at home. Like, I, 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 this is a guy I would have recommended to people. Well, th that is how, like, this is how crazy this situation can be. This is a guy I would have trusted and would have recommended his books to you because I, I did that. I gave people at our church his books back before all this happened. And then, uh, and then all this happened. So we often cannot see on the outside how like the real thing a, a, a false version can be, but he looked like the real deal for, for a long time. And if you look at what Jesus, or excuse me, what Hebrews says next. So after this thorns and thistles, look at verse nine, Hebrews six, nine, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of, you see what he says here? Better things, better things, things that belong to salvation. The thorny soil does not belong to salvation. It might look like it for a season, but it wasn't ever saved. No, if, if the things that belong to salvation are true of you, they will always be true of you. And, and perseverance will be the final evidence that we truly know the Lord uh, and that we, we are walking with him. Uh, let, me, let me also just cross-reference here, uh, or let me quote Dennis Johnson. I've already got a typo in the first word. That's not a good sign. Type these myself, as you can see, okay? <laughs> he says, our author, our author, like pastors today, uh, does not claim to look into others' hearts, but rather addresses his hearers in terms of their observable profession and behavior. Mm -hmm. It's all you can do. You can't see my heart. I can't see your heart. I can only see what's outside. You can only see what's outside, right? So he, he bases what he says on their observable profession and behavior, recognizing that appearances may prove, in the end, to be deceiving. Although the author addresses the community as a whole as believers, he hints at his own lack of omniscience. Some may not be true believers, even though by association they appear to be. The farmland analogy of verses 7 and 8 
illustrates the distinction between externally experiencing blessing, the rain that comes from heaven, and internal heart responses, which may vary. The gravity of such resolute rebellion is akin to Judas' treachery. One more quote here from him. The danger of willful apostasy from which repentance is impossible is real. It remains true that no one to whom Christ has given eternal life can be snatched out of his hand, but one can be a member, here it is, but one can be a member of a new covenant congregation, hearing God's word and seeing his spirit's works, yet nevertheless harden one's heart against God's voice as some Israelites did in the wilderness generation talked about there. Yeah, Alistair Begg uh, said they are deliberate, public, and continuous. That is those that are, um, that apostasy is when they are deliberate about um, racing away from Christ or public about it, and they're continuous. And I thought that was helpful in the way he described the true um, people that are apostates. Yes. So I want to turn to chapter 10 in just a second. Greg, any thoughts here? Um, let me let me make this, uh, this isn't something we, we talked about, but it's something I want I want to I want to stress because um, you mentioned Josh Harris. I want to go back to, you know, experiences are vital. Experiences are vital um, in the Christian life. Like it's important that we you know we talk about new life, we talk about new birth, we talk about worship. Like we there needs to be some emotional affectional component to our response. It's going to be different for each person, um, but we don't want to ultimately trust in our experiences. That's like not the grounds of our salvation. Right. It's not, not the foundation that we stand on. I want to make two quick points on this. Josh Harris, you mentioned his books. He had a book called Dug Down Deep, yep. which was a book on Christian doctrine. I mean, and, 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 you know, Josh Harris was charismatic in terms of his view of like the gifts of the Holy Spirit, stuff like that. And in that book, if I'm remembering right, he talked about speaking in tongues. This, so, I mean, it's, it's things that, that some would say, look, man, yeah, dude spoke in tongues. Um, obviously, I don't believe that we don't teach that here at Prince, but he, or at Prince, I can tell I'm a school teacher <laughs> yeah. here at, uh, at North Avenue. Oh my goodness. I, well, like, I call him Mr. Edgar here at church. So yeah, you know, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm in That's school good. mode too. Um, but, but the point is like, he, he had this experience that, that many would say was legitimate Christian experience. Right. Um, and what I want to say is we sing this in one of our, our, our hymns on, on Christ the solid rock I'd stand. that one phrase I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. not talking about like an external door frame. It's talking about like a mindset, like a frame of mind where you have like a, a sweet experience of Jesus and, and of the word and of the, you know, of, of worship, of, of, you know, getting something, seeing something, loving God, whatever. He's like, look, I don't even trust that. However sweet that experience is, what do I trust in? He says, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is seeking sand. If we want to put ourselves more firmly grounded against this apostasy, this turning away in the end, then we have to make sure that our ultimate hope is not in our experiences of the gospel, but in the gospel itself. Like we, and that is so subtle. It is so subtle. But if we're hoping in the feelings that the gospel gives us, we are on the on shifting sand, and eventually that foundation is going to come out. Let me let me just say one more thing on that. So if if I'm looking at tears, say you, say you shed tears during a service during a song, if you're saying those tears give me a right standing with God, then you're you're trusting in the sweetest frame, not on Jesus, because you're saying my tears have merit before God, or my 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 feelings before God have merit; they earn my salvation. 
That is its own kind of works righteousness, actually. Uh, now, if we truly trust in the Lord, it's going to show in our life. It's going to change our life. It's going to show in our life. And those things will be evidences that we're trusting in Christ. But Christ is our foundation of assurance. He is our merit. He is our righteousness. Nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross uh, we, we cling. So in, in, back to Hebrews for a second. Look at chapter 3. So go to the left to chapter 3. And just a couple verses here that I think are really, they can be often overlooked in the book of Hebrews. Uh, look at verse, uh, it's a little bit of a confusing metaphor, but in this metaphor, the house represents God's people. Uh, look at verse uh, 5 of Hebrews 3. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house, that refers to God's people, as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house, that's God's people, as a son, and we, the people, are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and uh, our boasting in our hope. Now, do, do you see that there? So look at this. We are, present tense, God's people, his house, if we hold fast to the end. So how do you know that you're saved right now? Ultimately, endurance in the faith is the final, testament, is the final test, right? But if you don't hold fast, then you weren't a Christian back then. That's what this, if that doesn't, if that's not clear enough, look at verse 14. Same exact grammatical idea here. Verse 14, for we have come, that's present tense, to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hmm. So if you don't hold to the end, you never had Christ back earlier. You see? So that the way you know you're truly sharing in Christ now ultimately will be tested by endurance. We will hold fast our confidence to the end. If we don't hold fast, we never actually came to share in Christ in the first place. You see, I think Hebrews actually teaches that true conversion lasts to the end of your life. And if you fall away, you never really shared in Christ in the first place. So with less than seven minutes left or so, maybe not even that much, five minutes left, let's go to Hebrews 10, and we'll just do this more briefly. There is a tremendous text of assurance that we won't even have time to spend much time on here, uh, verse, starting at verse 19, but uh, skip down to verse 23. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast uh, the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging uh, one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, do you, do you notice here the stirring up one another to love and good, good works uh, is connected with meeting together? And you see, the meeting together here isn't just like, oh, you know, good Christians go to church, which is the way this is often translated. Like, if you're a good Christian, you go to church. What this is saying is, if you want to endure in your walk with the Lord, you have to be surrounded by fellow believers. God has ordained that his people in the local church be a means of real encouragement to keep us from falling away into our own crazy, sinful thinking because we auto-correct each other. We, we Not auto, automatically, but by the Spirit, we correct each other. We stir each other up to love and good deeds. And that's why we meet together so that we are ready for the final day of judgment. Uh, if we don't have each other to encourage each other, we'll stray off into a thousand directions and we may not be ready for the final day. So this meeting together isn't some cute little Christian thing. This is a means of life and death. This is a way in which God keeps us in the faith and keeps us faithful and walking with him. And then the warning comes, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Greg, in context, what does sinning deliberately refer to here? 
Well, again, this, this gets to what we talked about earlier, making sure we keep the bigger context in mind. Because if we isolate this out, you want to talk about undermining you know, any assurance in your life. Um, I mean, we all have, there's a category for what's called involuntary sin. Um, Francis Turgeon talked about this, where it's like you have impulses that just arise that you didn't choose those impulses, sinful impulses. They're just there, and they are sinful, uh, and we need to repent of those, but it's not something we actively chose. And we think, but other times we choose to give in to sin. We choose to yield to its temptations. Um, I mean, we all know that, like, you know, that's why we have to repent, say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, you know, God help me do better. So we, we know there are times when we choose to sin willfully or deliberately, and if we don't understand the overall context of Hebrews, we could look at verses 26 and 27 and think, I am absolutely done. And I mean, I've been there as a Christian, like I've been there, and, and some of you might be there, maybe you've been there too. You come to a verse like this, and, and it just absolutely upends everything for you. You wonder, am I saved? Like if and, I've ever deliberately sinned, yeah, I'm not does saved. that mean I'm done? Does that invalidate everything I've done for Jesus? I mean, I, as far as I know, I still love Jesus. I want to read the word. I want to pray. I want to share the gospel. I, I hate sin, but I've sinned deliberately. Does that mean I've forfeited my salvation? The sinning deliberately or willfully here, um, keep in context, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, um, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's talking about going outside of Christ for our hope. In the context of Hebrews, it's the Jewish believers going back to Judaism. Okay, Basically, they're saying, whatever I have heard and learned in the gospel, I am intentionally, willingly, willfully, deliberately denying that and rejecting that for something else. Um, because again, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that phrase, there, remains, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, is, is important because it's like they're, they're, they're rejecting Jesus for something else as their final hope. And, and like that, that is the sinning deliberately, is rejecting Jesus. Not like in that moment where you yield to sin, yes, you chose to do it, but you're immediately afflicted in your conscience and you say, oh God, forgive me, uh, restore me, renew me, help me put that sin to death next time it comes up. That's not what this is talking about in the context, okay? And we have to say that because otherwise, I'm not sleeping tonight. I'm not gonna sleep tonight if that means anytime I, I have yielded to sin, um, I, I'm done. Right, yeah, d definitely does not mean that. And uh, Jerry, we're almost out of time here. Any closing thoughts as we move to a close here? Yeah, you know, I think that we can trust. I'm really thankful on a, on a Sunday like this, on every Sunday, on every day, that the Holy Spirit will apply this to our hearts. You know, and, and there's a Romans 8, 16, that the Holy Spirit will testify with your spirit that you're truly a child of God, if you are. And if you're not, the Holy Spirit will convict you so that you race to the cross Today, today is a day of salvation for anyone who has yet to know the Savior. So we're grateful that the Holy Spirit is the one who applies these words to our hearts, which to whichever we need. Yeah, so, so to, before we pray here, Christians will sin, but Christians will not live in their sin. Mm -hmm. Christians will hate their sin when they do it. They will repent of it. Uh, they, will, they will make things right. They will ask for forgiveness where that's necessary, and they will begin walking afresh with the Lord. A false convert uh, quietly loves sin in the heart, 
and there is no repentance truly. There is no real uprooting of sin. There is a living of sin, first in the heart, loving it and cherishing it in the heart, and then it will spill out into the life and begin to become habits that we live in. And those are very different realities. And so God is faithful to keep us from unrepentant sin as, as believers. Can you close us in prayer, Greg? Yeah, let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all of your word. Lord, we thank you for, for Hebrews 6. We thank you for Hebrews 10 and, Lord, other passages of Scripture that, that challenge us, um, Lord, with, with warnings that are sobering, uh, a bit scary. Um, but, Lord, we thank you that you saw fit to give us these passages, God, for our good. Uh, Lord, that we might um, know what true salvation is, that we might be able to recognize it in ourselves and others, that we might be able to, to know what false conversion is and false salvation, Lord, and be able to recognize that too. Um, and Lord, I, I just pray that, Lord, for anyone who's, Lord, and anyone here who's just genuinely struggling, even though, Lord, there's so many evidences of grace in their life, of, of conversion, of of repentance, of, of love for Christ, the Word, the church. Lord, I pray that that person would not be wrongly unsettled by what we've talked about. I pray there'd be comfort for them. But Lord, if there's one who hears this, either in, in this building or by live stream, God, who, um, Lord, has just externally gone through the motions, um, but they have no love for God, they have no love for the Word, no hatred of sin, no brokenness over sin, no repentance, no desire for the right things, Lord, I pray this would shake them up. Lord, I pray even as they hear this, as I say this, that it would awaken in them a fear for their souls um, in light of eternity. And God, that you would use this to, to make them consider the need to truly repent, to truly turn to Christ, to, to, to plead for your mercy and your grace, which you are more than willing to give. Uh, Lord, so use this in a powerful way in anyone God, who right now uh, has been self-deceived up to this point. But God, may assurance and, and confidence and hope and joy be for all of us who know Christ. And yet, Lord, may we feel the weight of the importance of enduring to the end. Uh, Lord, that our confidence and our hope will be shown when we don't just start well, but we finish in faith. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.